This is Arab Talk on KPOO San Francisco, 89.5 FM. This is Arab Talk with Jess and Jamal. I'm Jess Nam. And this is Jamal Dejani. And to all of our listeners and viewers, wherever you are in the United States and throughout the world, this is uh, Arab Talk in our new continued shelter-in-place setting in Northern California. We continue to bring you Arab Talk from our shelter-in-place, uh, basically mobile studio in Northern California. And uh, we've got a lot to talk about today, Jamal, but just to let our listeners know, at the time of uh, today's show, worldwide 4.4 million cases of coronavirus. Today, we're going to approach 300,000 global deaths in the United States. As of today, so far, 1.3 million cases and tragically, 84,000 plus deaths in the United States. And perhaps equally disturbing statistic today, Jamal, which we'll come back to later, is almost 36 million Americans have lost their jobs and are out of work. So we're starting our show today with a very grim medical reality, a very grim economic reality, And I guess we're going to start the show with another grim reality having to do with racial profiling, the murder of African-Americans, and uh, the Ahmed uh, Arbery case. That's right. Uh, Just last week, we we dedicated a good portion of our show talking about the uh, lynching, I would say, and murder of uh, Ahmed Arbery. And at the time... There was no arrest. And shortly after we've had the show, uh, Gregory McMichael and his son were arrested. And now they have been charged with murder. And throughout the whole week, we've been getting different stories and new information, a videotape, right. actually two videotapes now that, ha- uh, that have been released. And then to find out how incompetent the police department and the detectives investigating the case and the district attorney, or actually assistant district attorneys that actually changed, about four of them now, handling the case. It's just mind boggling. I'm not sure it's, and I'm not sure it's incompetence, Jamal, but we'll get to talk about that. To see, to just just to kind of trying to wrap our heads around it, and then um, actually now every day there is new information. So as you know, Gregory McMichael, the father, he's a former police detective, right? And now we find out at that actually uh, his certification to make arrests. And uh, carry firearm was suspended in February right. 2019 after repeated failures to complete required training according to documents from the Brunswick Judicial Circuit District's uh, Attorney's Office. And he also including a warning in 2014 that McMichael had neglected to finish mandatory firearms and use of force courses. Training. Right. Yeah. Right. So every day, and then, and then, of course, we find out that this was not the first encounter with uh, Ahmad, that they've been almost like stalking him well, for I think the past that's, weeks. Right. And I don't think it's almost. I think they were stalking him. I mean, that's, 
That's a good way he had been ID'd by this father-son duo. They took it upon themselves for whatever kind of bizarre white supremacist reason to stalk an African-American man who was just involved in his uh, morning jog and uh, decided to take matters into their own hands. And as you rightly point out, Jamal, from a former law enforcement individual who lost his ability to carry firearms and basically practice because he refused to complete training. It's that part of the story is actually very bizarre. And, 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 and more bizarre is that one of the prosecutors, George Barnhill, uh, also from uh, the judicial circuit, took the unusual step while recusing himself of writing a letter. He recused himself because he knew the McMichaels, especially the, the father. He wrote right. a letter to the local police department arguing that the McMichaels' actions were lawful under Georgia's citizens' arrest and self-defense statutes because they thought Arbery was a burglary suspect when there were no burglary, burglaries in that on record on that on yeah on record so it's a lot of a lot of things happening here just pointing to you don't like the word incompetent i don't know if it's a conspiracy then if we yeah, can use yeah I, I i would say it's a racially motivated conspiracy to protect you know uh these basically white supremacists, I don't think there's any other way to articulate it, from being held accountable under the law. For some reason, in that part of Georgia, they these prosecutors, and, and by the way, Jamal, it was two, it was not just one, two prosecutors recused themselves. Mm-hmm. And somehow, the lack of accountability, and it was just heart-wrenching to see Ahmed's uh, mother just in tears, because she's been waiting for accountability for months. Not it's hard to imagine that this was uh, just, you know, incompetence. It looks like it's a series of cover-ups and conspiracies to protect these two individuals from a blatant, I like the word you use, lynching and murder of this young African-American man. Yes, and then furthermore, the uh, Larry English, the man who owns the house under construction. right. right. Uh, where the cameras, where he ha- he actually said that he had installed three motion-activated cameras to keep tabs on the property. And this past Wednesday, his attorney released a statement noting that the cameras had captured people inside the home on four or five different o- occasions beginning in October, though right. nothing was ever stolen or damaged. Well, that's absolutely the, the, the case, Jamal, and it's important because also, uh, finally, the Georgia Bureau of Investigations, their lead uh, investigator, basically said anything that Ahmed did leading to his brutal murder was in no way unlawful. So the fact that he happened to walk inside of, an, of a house that's under construction to look around there, there was. There's nothing illegal about that. No illegal or felonious activity took place, and certainly the idea that someone could be walking around in a neighborhood, looking inside a house under construction, and then be shot dead and murdered in in cold blood. That's not acceptable under Je- any rule of law. Jess, I myself been on several occasions. <laughs> That's right. I've walked around 
construction to, sites. To construction sites because I was curious. Of course. And or I like to see what's what's happening. I mean, this is normal. Most people do that. It's not unusual. Right. And if you look at that video, Jamal, that's exactly what you see. You see this young, you know, African American man in his running gear look, coming in, looking around, and then leaving. That's right. So anyway, these are some updates on the sad events, of course. Um, uh, we are pleased to see that hopefully we, uh, justice is moving in the right direction, but that's I, not going to bring I'm, back Ahmad I'm, uh, to I'm his mother. Op- I'm not as optimistic as you, Jamal. I'm sorry. I, I guess I, in the uh, Arab talk duo, you're the more optimist and I'm the more pessimist because... Well, even- I... I I don't see it any other way, Jess. It's, this is a cold-blooded murder. This is what I see, a cold-blooded lynching. This young man was running, jogging. He was chased and hunted down like an animal. I hate to say this, but this how it looked like. The, the motives are very clear. He never broke into anything. He never stole anything in that neighborhood. He wasn't carrying any firearms. He was trying to defend himself when they were intercepting him. And, and both of them carrying guns, a shotgun meant to basically hunt wild animals with. He was gunned down in cold blood. So I don't see anything but putting these two criminals in jail, frankly. Well, we 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 can only hope that uh, justice will be served and that some accountability. But I think it's important that we remind ourselves that this is 2020 in the United States, and it's still the case that African Americans and people of color can be hunted, shot dead, and murdered. And were it not for this one citizen who happened to have the video. If he didn't make it public, Jamal, this murder and lynching would have gone unaccounted for, and this this uh, this this young man's death would have been uh, in you know we would have lost this man in vain, and his mother and family would have never had the opportunity to see their day in court. We can only hope that there will be justice served on this. That's right. You're listening to Arab Talk on KPOO San Francisco 89.5 FM. Uh, we are also br- we're broadcasting from our shelter in place. <laughs> and uh, I want to shift some uh, shift gears here. And then we want to go back and to discuss uh, the most recent updates on the coronavirus. But uh, I want to also talk about what's going on in uh, Palestine uh, we also discussed this a uh, little bit last week, uh, and we, uh, you know, uh, you know, we've seen uh, the most recent developments and the what I say the carte blanche uh, given by uh, the Trump administration and, and Secretary Pompeo to Benjamin Netanyahu to annex large swaths of the West Bank, and this plan seems in motion. Uh, not only in motion, but it has all the full blessings and it also coincides with the unity government that Israel is going to be forming. Although today, just an update on the unity government, Netanyahu delayed the inauguration of the unity government. It was supposed to be happening right. actually today uh, and they've delayed it until I think Sunday or uh, 
early uh, next week because they've had infighting over cabinet posts. Of course. And, and so there is a delay, but, uh, but it looks anyway that there, there, there will be a unity government established with Netanyahu serving the first two years of the term, uh, fo- followed by uh, uh, Gantz uh, to com- complete this. And with both uh, parties basically are in full agreement to go ahead with uh, the annexation uh, plan. So um, just we... Uh, hey, Jamal, had- before, before we get to uh, uh, your our interview with our guest, I just want to make sure that we mention that we're also one day away from the 72nd anniversary of the Nekba or the catastrophe and the theft of Palestinian land in 1948. Tomorrow's May 15th. It's the 72, 72nd anniversary. We're commemorating 72 years of occupation, theft, ethnic cleansing, and the displacement at that time of over 800,000 uh, Palestinians and uh, over you know 580 uh, villages and towns that were ethnically cleansed. And so the fact that we're having this discussion today and we're doing this interview and talking about the Israeli uh, unity government is under the backdrop of, of a really, you know, painful realization for Palestinians on this on this particular day. Yeah, absolutely, Jess. And, uh, and I mean, uh, and in the sad thing about it, this is in the midst of a global crisis. Uh, exactly. The COVID-19, so... Uh, which affected the entire uh, uh, world, that uh, very few people are paying attention to what's happening uh, in Palestine. With well, that's the, anne- that's the Israeli playbook, Jamal. That's exactly yeah, with, the Israeli playbook. With the annexation plan yes. and the move, and they've already uh, uh, technically annexed uh, Jerusalem, uh, uh, and um, the United States has given Israel you know, the uh, full sovereignty over Jerusalem and the Golan Heights. And uh, few people complained, but that has just passed through. Uh, although, I, you know, we have to say that the rest of uh, the world is against it, but no one is making any noise over this issue. Well, of course, Jamal. You know, as we've noted on multiple occasions, every time there is a world crisis of any kind, whether it be... Uh, epidemic, a pandemic, an economic crisis, uh, a terrorist attack, anything. Anytime there is a world crisis and attention turns its uh, attention is turned to world stabilization in some way, the Israelis never miss an opportunity to steal more land, to ethnically cleanse more Palestinians, and to basically extend their apartheid practice. So I guess this is no surprise to you and me that in the midst of a pandemic, that a prime minister who is being, you know, basically indicted on multiple felonies right now is on the verge in in the middle of all this of becoming prime minister of, of the apartheid state. So I'm very curious to hear, you know, <laughs> what our guest has to say about this, Jamal. I just don't we continue to try to wrap our minds around the, you know, how horrible the situation uh, is in Palestine. And you have Benjamin Netanyahu, who's been indicted on multiple felony accounts, who's on the verge of forming a unity government. So our guest is uh, David Michaelis. He's an Israeli 
veteran uh, journalist, and uh, we were lucky to have this interview with him. And he's actually, uh, we, I've talked to him where, where he is now in uh, outside Sydney, Australia. So he was also able to give us an update on the situation in Australia. Let's uh, listen to uh, David Michaelis. Joining us from Sydney, Australia, my colleague and Israeli journalist, David Michaelis. Welcome to Arab Talk again, David. Marhaba to everyone who is listening. I'm calling here from Tweed Heads in Australia. All right. So this is, this is great. I'm, I'm assuming, I hope you're, you and your family are doing well uh, under these, these dire circumstances and you're obviously sheltering in place in Sydney. And, uh, near Sydney. Uh, we are sheltering, but we are doing fine because uh, we are almost near zero new cases in the last week. So Australia is doing very well. Oh, that's, this is great news. We'll, we'll talk about this later on, uh, David. I just wanted to yeah. touch base with you. You're our expert on Israeli politics. And I think with this whole uh, coronavirus distraction, major global distraction, no one is, has been talking about what's going on in Israel. And, uh, and, and people are confused. I was like watching last week, of course, uh, you know, uh, a court ruling was expected uh, by the end of the week that will dictate whether Israel breaks out of its prolonged political paralysis with, Net with Netanyahu and his former uh, political rival, uh, Benny Gantz, joining forces uh, in government or whether the country is going to plunge into another election. So what have you been hearing about this? Well, basically, Netanyahu is the master of the game. And he succeeded to dismantle the opposition and break it apart and uh, succeeded to put Gantz into his government, which means that he has a large consensus government, center-right, um, and uh, he does actually whatever he wants. So he's in full control. And the other thing I was looking at, because the court, I was trying to read through the court uh, hearing uh, or question, main questions. And the, one of the questions was, was whether a politician, which is Netanyahu, facing criminal corruption charges can form a new government. That was one, one question. I mean, he still faces uh, criminal charges or whether his coalition deal with Gantz violate the law. So do you think he's going to also beat the court in Israel? He might beat it, but I don't think so. But in this case, all the arguments in the high court were political moral arguments. They weren't judicial arguments. So the court decided not to intervene and actually gave uh, Netanyahu a free pass to go on and uh, decided not to make a value judgment, but judicially, they said he's on good grounds to go on till he will really be convicted, not only on trial, that he would be really convicted. So as he is still uh, a suspect and not a convicted suspect, he can go on being prime minister. 
So this can go on for years. I mean, you you, you said earlier oh. that he's a he's a master in in maneuvering Israeli politics. I mean, he's the longest serving prime minister ever in Israel. Sure, he's the longest one because he is uh, very good at manipulating all his um, all his partners on the right. Uh, except apparently for one extreme right group, which is kicking out now the uh, group of Bennett, and he is uh, all the time uh, playing to center right as far as his uh, convictions are concerned. And uh, he is, um, I'm sorry to say, he is a winner of the political game in Israel. So where, where will this lead us? As you know, Netanyahu got his biggest gift ever, uh, in my opinion, uh, yeah. uh, via the election of uh, Donald Trump, uh, the moving of the American embassy to Jerusalem, yeah. the carte blanche to annex the Golan Heights, and now another carte blanche to annex uh, large uh, parts of the West Bank. So, yeah. I mean... I don't see any opposition. I hear few voices objecting to this, but it seems that he's just going to get away with everything. And 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 where is the Israeli basically political left, if any left, if any left? You know, this is not a pun on words, but uh, doing about it. What are they doing about it? They are demonstrating, but it doesn't help. There is a black flag uh, demonstration group that uh, went to Jerusalem from Tel Aviv, and uh, there were a few hundreds, but it's, as you say, nothing is left of the left, and uh, Israel is not really um, an open democracy now. It's really being held uh, by very... um, uh, religious and nationalist voices uh, as the ones who dictate where Israel is going. So actually, I suggested that instead of wearing masks against uh, the coronavirus, they should wear masks against corruption. Uh, wow. So uh, uh, hopefully some of our listeners and viewers on uh, YouTube and Facebook Live uh, remember that you and I, 15 years ago, to this yeah. date, worked on occupied mines. It's been, it's yeah. actually the 15-year anniversary, and then uh, at some point, you and I will have a uh, a premiering, another premiere of that online. Yeah. Since everyone is uh, at home, they can watch uh, the documentary again. And at the time, David. People were asking us, "Can it get any any worse?" Right? And 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 people, some people said it can't be, it can't get any worse. You know, Israel is building this apartheid wall, and and and, and it's a horrible time. And then here we are, 15 years afterwards, and it is worse. Uh, yeah, it reminds me um, at a workplace I worked at that each time we said, "Can it be worse?" And then you knock on the floor and you feel that there's another basement that you can descend into. So since 15 years ago, uh, the occupation is much harsher and uh, um, the 
Palestinian voices uh, are totally gone from the public or um, space of public dialogue in Israel. So what Netanyahu is doing now, because if you, if you recall one of the questions I was posing and we were posing to some of the progressives in the Israeli side and others, whether we are heading towards a binational state and and people were surprised that we're even asking, asking this question, but it is now what Netanyahu is creating on, on the ground is a binational state, but it is an apartheid state at the same time. Yeah, he definitely, especially with his uh, in declared intentions of getting more territory uh, to Israel under Trump's uh, umbrella, um, uh, definitely it's one state unequal uh, with two people living unequally uh, between the Jordan Valley and the sea. It's one state unequal. <laughs> well, do you, do you think this situation is sustainable? I mean, obviously, he thinks it's sustainable. Those who support, support him now, like about at least the 900,000 uh, settlers in the West Bank, of course, they support this vision. But do you feel that the Israeli public at large think that, uh, thinks that this is a sustainable solution? Uh, I think that they live from uh, what they call managing the conflict. They think that it's probably uh, from today till tomorrow sustainable. On the long term, many think it's not sustainable, but the fact is that we are now not only 15 years after the film, we are 50 years after the beginning of the occupation. So. Uh, if you look at this perspective, I think uh, that it will go on and it will sustain itself because uh, the international voices also are really occupied with other matters. Well, do you think that the Israel is, has been overtaken now by the settlers, really? Because that's what I feel their voices are the ones that are heard and everyone else is marginalized. Uh, yeah, I think it's beyond settlers. I think the right-wing nationalist voices that say that this is one country for Jews is the one voice that is being heard and is in government. And uh, this will go on as long as uh, Netanyahu succeeds each time to dismantle the opposition. So let's say, let's play a, out a scenario that Netanyahu was in actually before this uh, coalition, right? So supposedly he's going to serve the, for the next two years and then Gantz will come. This is kind of like what happened with the uh, with yeah. uh, Shimon, Shimon Peres, right? Is that going to change anything? Like, after two years, will there be anything left for Gantz to change? Uh, difficult to say, A, if it will happen. A year and a half is a long time in politics, and some people say that Netanyahu never, ever kept a promise or an agreement that didn't work for him. 
So a year and a half is uh, one point of departure. And uh, the other point is that uh, he will have some slowing down of occupation process, but really, I don't think that Gantz is a man who will change the whole balance of uh, this one-state direction. I don't, I don't believe so. so. Mm. Yeah, you're, you're probably right. I, I have a feeling, actually, that Netanyahu doesn't have even the intention to leave power, that he'll find an excuse to, to stay. To stay. <laughs> he reminds me of Donald Trump. Like, I also have this kind of vision that Donald Trump also doesn't want to leave the White House, and this is Netanyahu. Yeah. They share the same kind of uh, thirst for control and, and power. I want to shift gears here. We started talking about it earlier. Uh, yeah. because, uh, and uh, I was like, really glad to hear that like, you guys are not that worried about the coronavirus where you live. Uh, true, because Australia is a big, huge island. And the fact is that Australia and New Zealand succeeded to close their international borders or early enough, make immediate close down of all the population in their homes and uh, beat it down to actually almost eradicated uh, all cases. And uh, of course, there are asymptomatic cases running around, but still it's a safe haven compared mm -hmm. to not only to the USA, but compared to Europe, it's uh, only other countries are Taiwan and South Korea who have done similar achievement. I mean, is it business as usual? Are people going out to the beaches and to the market almost, without almost eating eating almost. in restaurants? No I separation think... in the tables. Uh, uh, no, not yet. It's slowly. They are cleverly opening slowly by stages because they don't want a second wave suddenly to to hit the population. So they are opening schools slowly, restaurants slowly, uh, beaches slowly, cinemas no, um, uh, football, rugby, which is big time in uh, Australia, yet only starting to do uh, training not in front of audience, so it's a slow process. Well, this is really great news, uh, I mean, for Australia, and of course, uh, I didn't know that this is, this, this, this is how it was in Australia. I, I've actually known that New Zealand managed to yeah. take control of the situation very yeah. quickly and eradicate it, but it, it sounds like Australia is doing the same thing, which is uh, fantastic. Yeah. I want to uh, thank you, David, uh, for your time. Yeah. This is really a pleasure to speak to you. And uh, yeah. hope, hopefully we will be talking soon. I hope so, too. And be safe and happy. You, too. Well, that, that, that's the voice of David Michaelis. You know, uh, it's, it's great to see David Jamal, you know, because uh, you and David have that long collaborative history on uh, Occupied Minds, and uh, I can't believe it's been that many years since Occupied Minds uh, have premiered itself, and it's a good time for Occupied Minds to reshow itself. I guess the thing for me 
that was really surprising to hear David, and I've heard him say this before, but it, it's always surprising. And you you kind of pointed it out. There's nothing left of the left. So you have a unity government uh, uh, among Israelis right now between the extreme right and why they want to call it the left. It's not. And the right. So it's the extreme right and the right. Both these, there's no left anymore. And the fact that a couple of hundred people show up in Tel Aviv to protest uh, this craziness, this apartheid craziness, speaks to how how far things have gone for Israelis, because it doesn't seem like there's any opposition to the egregious policies of the state of Israel right now. They're going full steam ahead. There isn't any room for disagreement anywhere. No, there isn't any room, and David pointed it out, and he actually pointed it out how uh, Benjamin Netanyahu is uh, basically the master of exploiting uh, opportunities and he's going to exploit everything about what's happening now with the COVID-19 and he's not going to give up power. And then the other thing you've mentioned, I had, uh, I have a long history working with David Michaelis at Link TV, uh, working on uh, Mosaic World News from the Middle East and, and working together on a documentary uh, occupied minds, which we at that time things were really bad, and we didn't expect it's going to get <laughs> this worse. Like we here we are, fifteen years afterwards, that things have uh, gotten really, really worse. And one of the questions we were at the time uh, exploring, asking about this binational situation, and for right. those people who don't know what's binational, this is uh, basically uh, having a state for two, two different. Uh, Ethnic, ethnic groups like Canada, Canada, you know, with the English and the French, that's a binational state. And then there was hope, but we actually, Netanyahu is now moving towards that, this binational existence, but it's an apartheid binationalism. Right. Right. And we, and, and during the, docu- in the documentary, we discussed this with several of our subjects who had their different view and vision about this binational thing. And some, of course, on the Israeli side, they were very uh, sensitive about using this terminology. And sure enough now, Israel is going to control pretty much most of Palestine uh, and, uh, and with two sets of laws, one for uh, Jewish Israelis and another one for Palestinians, which is like Jim Crow era. Uh, that uh, the United States had uh, here, right here in this yeah. country. Yeah, and that, that, that's why the, the movie uh, Occupied Minds in some ways, Jamal, was prophetic. Fifteen years ago, you interviewed a bunch of people, although they were hesitant to use some of those words. They cl- completely uh, supported, you know, the, the, the viewpoint that uh, you were arguing with in uh, Occupied Minds. And look at where we are today. I mean, one of the things that, that David said that I think is really important that you you got from the interview is that basically Netanyahu can do whatever he wants. It, he's yeah. not a prime minister. He's a king in a way. He's in the mode, in the model of uh, Donald Trump. He doesn't care what the Supreme Court says. The Supreme Court is going to let him do whatever they want. He's going to do whatever he wants. He's going to go forward, as you said, in you know, you mentioned in the interview, he's the longest serving prime minister in the history uh, of the state. And um, 
there's no one that's going to stop him. In fact, you have Secretary of State Pompeo in meeting with Netanyahu now in the middle of a global pandemic, in the middle of 36 million Americans, Jamal, losing their jobs, 85,000 Americans killed. And where is the Secretary of State? He's in Tel Aviv supporting Netanyahu's apartheid annexation policies. So tell me, Jamal, what's wrong with that picture right now? Well, obviously, uh, I mean... uh it's really a very terrible time uh, for Palestinians, especially Palestinians on the ground. They're, they're really being uh, basically played with like a football, to tell you the truth. Uh, this is the time when everybody is uh, holed up at, in their homes because of the pandemic. And uh, there is a global crisis, uh, the economy, uh, of many countries, including the United States and others, is, is tanking. They themselves suffer economically because uh, I don't see any source of income coming their way. And uh, and then Netanyahu is just going to go ahead unless there is some some new force or some or something would happen to stop Israel from uh, expanding its territory. Uh, despite uh, the objection of the Palestinians and the entire world, uh, this is going to happen. And it happened, we've seen it happen, happening with uh, East Jerusalem, we've seen it happening uh, with the Golan Heights. Right. And, and it's going to happen. And uh, it, uh, you could see even the, uh, the media right here in this country trying to normalize this shifting the word, uh, instead of using the word occupation into disputed territory, uh, you know, or, uh, you know, there is some conflict or it's right. a political, it's, that's, it's just a political benign political game right. without holding Israel accountable to its behavior. I saw two articles just this week, uh, one in the uh, New York Times and one in the... Uh, Washington Post, and one was about the death of an Israeli soldier who was on a raid, an unarmed Israeli soldier, and he, he got killed in, in the process. And the article was just totally sympathetic to the soldier. You know, it's a 22-year-old <laughs> soldier. He lost his life. You know, there was nothing that this was an occupation. <laughs> that was an occupation. And he was on a mission to kill Palestinians. And he was on a mission yeah. to basically invade a, a small village. Right. You know, and so, so, so the way the narrative, if you looked at the article itself, the article was presenting it as if as he was the victim right. of Palestinian terror. You know, here you are, it's the same story. You're, they're sitting in their village, wherever, and they get invaded by uh, a couple of dozen Israeli uh, military vehicles, and the people try to resist. They throw stones. One of the soldiers get killed. The Israelis that went there, the Israeli military, they're all armed to the teeth with uh, machine guns. And then now the victim becomes the, op- the oppressor. The oppressor right. becomes the victim. This is how the New York Times. And then the other one in the Washington Post was about this whole idea of about the annexation right. it's just like it's just like a political game 
internal political game, the way they were describing it, an internal political game between the settler movement, you know, the far-right Israelis and the rest of the Israelis with no mention of the Palestinians. They're like, no, they are invisible. They have no say. Right. Well, you know, the, you that's, know that's, that's how the, the media presents it. That's the narrative. And, you know, Jamal, I, I don't think we can leave this discussion with at least some acknowledgement of the failure of Palestinian leadership um, or failure of the lack of Palestinian leadership. I mean, here we go again, so many decades after Oslo, uh, so many missed opportunities for the Palestinian leadership to step up and to do something to, you know, um, take care of Palestinians in the West Bank, in the diaspora, in the refugee camps, to really fight for the un and inalienable rights that all Palestinians have, Jamal. The Palestinian leadership is is in the midst of ongoing morass. I mean, still no elections. Still, Abu Mazen and his group are, you know, in charge of everything right now. And um, it's a sad day in terms of the failures of uh, Palestinian leadership right now. And I think, you know, it's important that we kind of put that out there in the context of the ongoing catastrophe now, 72 years on. Yeah. So uh, I we have a few minutes. I want to go back to talking about the yeah, COVID-19. Let, but I want to make a quick comment before that about also another part of David's interview because he happened to be in Australia. So right. he talked about the situation there. And uh, I, I knew about the situation in New Zealand, like they hardly have any, or they were able to kind of uh, conquer the pandemic in New Zealand, which is a small country. But he said it was also almost the same in Australia. That's right. That's right. And so my question is, in a way, how did they manage to do that? And when we have this, uh, sure. we're, we're nowhere near that. I have two very direct answers for you. One, uh, people of Australia and their government believe in science, and you didn't have people, and we'll get to this in terms of the United States, who went against the recommendations of their government of social distancing. So even though the Australian prime minister is a Trumpian leader, and, you know, more kind of, you know, uh, is considered kind of the version of a right-leaning, you know, uh, conservative leader. He actually believed in science. He listened to his scientists. He listened to the epidemiologists. They had very strict rules in place for social distancing and sheltering in place. And the and most people in Australia, even though there's it's a big, you know, continent and there's lots of distance in between, even in the big cities, people were complying. And in that situation, when you have a combination of a unified uh, federal response, people believing in science and, you know, kind of going along with the program, you could see the beneficial effects in Australia, in South Korea, in New Zealand. So there's no magic here, Jamal. Uh, uh, if you believe in science and you listen to epidemiologists and you socially quarantine yourself and you believe in social distancing and you 
wash your hands and you do all the things that we're trying to tell people to do, you shelter in place, this thing can become temporarily overcome. The reason we're in the dilemma that we have here is that we actually have a president of the United States who yesterday, and this was so disturbing, and I, I don't know if you, I'm sure you saw it, openly criticize Dr. Fauci, Anthony Fauci, the leading world expert <laughs> on um, infectious diseases who gave a very compelling testimony in, in a congressional hearing, Jamal, who basically said, we're headed for trouble we're, we, if we open too soon and we don't continue with our social distancing, we're in for some horrible consequences of more infection, more death, and even more uh, harm to our economy. And then you have the President of the United States criticize Fauci and said, oh, he's speaking out of both sides of his mouth. And, you know, there are other people who disagree with him. I mean, this is the kind of uh, rhetoric, Jamal, politically motivated, unscientific rhetoric that's going to drive this economy into the ditch. We have 36 million Americans who've lost their jobs. That's an undercount. We have 80, close to 85,000 Americans who are dead. The new projections put the number of deaths by August to be about 150,000 deaths. This thing is not under control. The heartland, the middle of the country right now, Jamal, is is <clears throat> experiencing a resurgence of uh, COVID infections and deaths right now. Uh, nursing homes are out of control. O older adults in nursing homes are dying at alarming rates. And now, and this is really for me among the worst pieces of information, children are developing um illnesses and symptoms now, Jamal, similar to toxic shock syndrome. It's called multi-system inflammatory syndrome, which, right. mean, which means children who are getting the, the COVID virus are developing a massive inflammatory response in their bodies that is basically causing them to have heart attacks and for their, and their bodies to shut down. So to go back to your question about Australia, New Zealand, you know, South Korea, in those countries, they didn't have people with guns storm their state capitals, threatening to take down their state governments and going to the Supreme Court of their states and saying, we don't want to listen to the scientists. Let us be free. This fake narrative that somehow, you know, we have our rights to kind of go out there and be infected and infect other people. So that's the reason why we in the United States, Jamal, are in this horrific, catastrophic mess now. Even if it gets a little bit better, we're faced, and this is where uh, just uh, this morning, I don't know if you saw it, but Dr. Bright, the whistleblower who got fired, who's the leading expert in the CDC developing uh, vaccines, basically said, we're headed in the fall for even a more catastrophic outcome because we're not prepared. We're not going to get a vaccine in time. We've got the flu, so on and so forth. So he was, the whistleblower, was predicting a far worse scenario than even Anthony Fauci. So that's a very long answer to your question about why here is different from Australia. 
Yeah, well, uh, here is the scenario. I mean, we know that now states are opening up, right? Including uh, counties in California. There are uh, three, I think, counties that right. uh, are either open or will be open for business this weekend. Right. And then other, and then you have more than thirty states that are already open. Have open, open. And I was actually watching a small, uh, uh, small documentary on uh, on the nineteen eighteen uh, influenza, and in it, it showed that how uh, when it first came, the same thing. They thought it's a regular flu, and they didn't have enough deaths. And then it kind of like picked up steam, and then. And then it subsided, and then they, uh, then it came back in August of that year with vengeance because actually, people relaxed. And actually, there were three phases of it before right. I thought it was uh, two phases. So in August it came back, and it sounds like to me the same scenario. Like you open up now in May, and then August or September, the COVID nineteen, if it follows the same pat- pattern, it, it, it will come back. And with the 1918 uh, influenza, it came back uh, with, in, with full vengeance in, uh, in August. And then it came back early January of 1919. So they had three phases of it before. It took like uh, until three, two years later before things kind of started to stabilize. So if we learn anything from history. We haven't. And we haven't. It sounds to me, it's kind of super crazy to kind of get impatient and try to open a month or two months earlier when you know the outcome is going to be devastating comes the fall. Well, this is why when you have a leader of a country who doesn't believe in science and is putting economic, short-term economic interests prevailing over the long-term health wellness and survival of the constituency of the entire country and long-term health of the economy is putting the short-term interest ahead of it, why you're seeing people act in such a way, going out there saying, we want our country back, you know, uh, we have a right to be out there, Uh, we need to go out there, we need to shop, we need to do whatever we do, completely ignorant of history, completely ignorant of science. And we have to say that it's a failure of leadership at the federal level yet again, Jamal. Because if you sample Americans, over 70% say they don't feel safe going back to work right now. And this is part of our discussion last week. People of color are the ones who are going back to work. Uh, people on low-income wages are are the ones that have to go back to work in unsafe situations. People who are desperate, who don't have support, enough financial support to support their families, who are not getting unemployment. These are individuals who are being forced to go back into the workplace unprotected and who are going to get sick. And um, the... uh, You know, it's mind-boggling to me to see how this continues to happen, and there is no holding back Donald Trump and his administration. Um, And by the way, Jamal, we said this before, it's his constituency 
in the in the middle of the country that are dying and getting infected at a much greater rate than anybody else. Yet, you know, they they continue to support him. They continue to support him. They continue to go out carrying arms, which I, I, I just don't understand why you need to carry an M16 to go and eat a sandwich. But anyway, that's a whole... That's you know, another story. That's a whole uh, whole different story. And then, uh, so what's what's the option? Just because it looks here's like... The option, here's the option, the, Jamal. The Pe- states are going to open. Here's, the, here's what's going to happen. People are going to die. And people are going to unfortunately have to learn the hard way. And I hate to say this, but I could tell you uh, what I'm telling people is maintain social distancing. Maintain everything that you've been told so far. If you feel like you have to go out, you need to be covered. Wear glasses because it looks like the virus can be transmitted through the eyes very, very easily. <laughs> you know, don't put yourself in a situation when you're going to be in a in a room with a lot of people. I, th- yeah, I don't know. You probably saw this too, Jamal. But I saw... There was a doctor coming back from New York on a United Airlines flight from New York to San Francisco. You saw that picture. Yeah. And despite United Airlines saying, we're going to practice social distancing, every single seat was taken and people got infected on this flight. They were supposed to have empty seats in between passengers. The middle seats were were supposed to be empty. And I was was shocked to see this. And here is the funny thing that I will share with you just because, as you know, every summer I travel, so I have reservations. And I had reservations to fly to Europe uh, that I was uh, working on cancellation. So I went to United Airlines. I went to actually to the first I started with the website or the app. And my reservations were a direct flight flying from San Francisco to Paris. And then I saw them. They didn't cancel it. They changed my flight but instead of being uh, having it as a direct flight, it had three legs flying from San Francisco to Houston and from Houston to Newark and from Newark. And I was like, why are you doing this? It looks like because their flights are getting, they're losing passengers. Right. They want to pick up passengers along the way right. to crowd the flight. And of course, I, I've managed to, to cancel it. And I said, no, no, I don't want these changes. Uh, Paris is under lockdown. So I want to cancel it. I don't want to change it. But so United, what they're doing, uh, because like, for example, if you want to fly to Boston from San Francisco or Washington or New York, they have reduced all their flights. They used to have like to Boston at least 15 flights a day minimum. Now they have one flight. Right. Okay. And the rest are with stopovers. So here's here's my final point before we sign off today, Jamal. We're, we're, your analogy to the 1918 influenza catastrophe as a pandemic is a good one. It could be much worse than that if we continue as a country to live in denial and deny science and go along with reopening the economy willy-nilly without taking this stuff seriously. I, for one, will never get on a plane in the foreseeable future. I'm glad that you, I'm sorry that your your holiday plans got canceled, but personally, I'm relieved to hear that you're not going to get on one of these flying Petri dishes. And every day I'm hearing more stories about people who get on planes, 
who do all the techniques, wear masks, gloves, everything, and they're still getting infected. So bottom line is, put your seatbelts on, don't get on a plane, and continue, you know, social distancing. Well, unfortunately, some people will have to fly because of uh, something, work or work-related, or they need to go and visit uh, something, you know, their elderly I don't know. Care. Well, uh, yeah, I mean, definitely, if you have a flight uh, vacation or something, that's going to be all canceled. But I don't know how you, we are going to stop uh, basically travel in in the United States, uh, whether uh, for commerce or whether for business. It's going to be very difficult. And also, I was looking at the new guidelines. And the new guidelines, this is the other thing. I mean, at the same time, we have to think about uh, people who are going to be devastated economically and, uh, you know, businesses uh, uh, looked at the new guidelines for opening some businesses like restaurants uh, for every 11 seats or 11 tables. Restaurants can only open four. Right. And they can uh, they cannot have a bar um, uh, right. operation right. and ma- many, many other things. So there is no way, you know, the Bay Area prices, rental right. and so forth, that these restaurants will survive. So, so yes, it's going to be devastated as far as devastating as far as people lives is concerned. But also uh, I predict, sadly, that 25 percent of the restaurants in the United States will shut down. Well, on that note, Jamal, we have a sobering note, I should say. We'll continue this discussion on future episodes of Arab Talk. We want to thank our listeners for joining us in our shelter-in-place production of Arab Talk Radio. You can always listen to our shows at our website, arabtalkradio.com, where we podcast all of our shows you can go to uh, Jamal's Facebook page to to watch our shows, Jamal Dejani 2, and follow us on Twitter, right? That's right. Stay safe, stay healthy, and we will speak to you next week. Mm-hmm.